Well, good morning, everybody. That was pretty good. How are we doing this morning? Are we all right? Doing okay? All right, good. Online crew, thank you for joining us online. It's good to virtually see you. I think you can see me. I can't quite see you yet, but um, thank you for joining us online. Thank you for being here in person. It's an honor to be with you. Kevin, thank you for your prayer and Ben and company for leading us in worship. I think I hear you singing. I think I hear that coming through your, your mask, and I appreciate that. And I'm with Katie, too. Like, I'm going to assume there's a smile behind the mask until you prove me otherwise. So that's where we're going with this morning, okay? Um, well, I have a question for you as we get started here this morning. Um, when does a team become a team? When does a team actually become a team, a real team? I think back to my days at Dallas Seminary, I was a student there, and um, some of you know this story, some may not, but the, one of the first things we were asked to do when I got to Dallas Seminary with my wife, Jen, and it was just Jen and I then at the time, this is just a few years ago, and when we got there, they said, hey, listen, we're glad to have you new students. Your first requirement is to spend the first weekend that you're at school away from your spouse, and you're going to be with like a small group or a life group, they called it, and you are going to be with them, and it's going to be a great weekend, and you guys are going to bond. You're going to make the lifetime friends on this weekend out in Tyler, Texas. And I'm like, you're kidding me. You're mandating that I leave my wife in a city of two million people. We don't know anybody. We've been here about a week and a half, and you're telling me I got to leave? My attitude was terrible. I'm like, I'm not going to make friends. I'm going to be angry the whole weekend. I don't want to leave my wife in this random city of 2 million people. She doesn't want me to leave her, but now you're making me go because you want to build a team. You want the five of us guys who are going to be in this little life group to bond over this weekend. Well, I will tell you, we did not become a team that weekend, in part because of my bad attitude. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. I didn't become a team with these guys the first day we showed up together at that little retreat in Tyler, Texas. In fact, in the weeks to come, I still carried bitterness and frustration that I was mandated into this forced fellowship group. You ever been in a situation like that? Like, doggone it, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to have fun. Even if you tell me I have to have fun, right? Just because I want it the way I want it. I played on enough basketball teams. I played on enough soccer teams. I played on enough teams to know that a team doesn't become a team just when you make the team. Like if you don't get cut and you technically make the team, it doesn't really make you a team team yet, not a real team yet. Just when you get uniforms handed out, does that make you a team? Or maybe when the schedule comes out, or maybe when you play your first game and playing time is really allotted, you know, is that when you become a team? For real, like a real team. And the way that life works, and I think you know this in your own experience, the team bonds over time, and the team bonds over losses, the team bonds over pain. And just because you made the team, quote-unquote, doesn't make you a team. Just because you have uniforms and get the team picture doesn't mean you're a real team. It just means you have uniforms, right? Like, what does it actually take for a team to become a team? And our experience in life proves that becoming a team is a long, gradual, increasing process. The likelihood of becoming a team increases with intentionality, with focus, and with walking through some really difficult stuff. And I have the question around, if you call yourself a Christian, what puts you on the Christian team? Is it just when you pray a prayer at some point in your life and say, I follow Jesus, are you now on the team? Or is that just getting the uniform? Is it, well, I got baptized and now I'm in? Or is it that, hey, I come to church on Sundays or watch online, am I now on the team? Is that enough to really be a part of the team? What makes the Christian team a team? And I think the principles apply across disciplines, whether it's my small group or 
uh, basketball team or even the church itself? What really bonds the people of Christ together? What really moves them together? It is not just when we get our uniforms and get picture day. It is this intentional, gradual, increasing bond over time as we walk together through the ups and downs. And in this series, Deeply Undivided, I do, and I'm convinced, I'm convinced there's a place where the differences that we have with one another can deepen us rather than divide. In the first week of this series, I tried to get us to, to keep our eyes up to the, to the mountain. I appreciate the song this morning, Ben, about where our help comes from. Psalm 121, keep our eyes up to where our help comes from. We talked about how Christ at Mount Calvary is now that north star for us, for, for all Christians, to look to Christ. Last week, we talked about the threat that can happen in this journey of life. If you imagine life being like a journey going up and down the mountain pass, and sometimes you get distracted by, by you know, whatever, a, a bump in the night over here and by a, a raging stream over here, and you have all kinds of distractions, but there are people who are just a step or two in front of us who are our leaders, who help us get through difficult things. And I talked about the challenge it can be to look ahead and see a leader and then elevate them further than we should, and to look to our leaders in times of division rather than to look at and then beyond our leaders to Christ. That great leaders point us to where we really should be looking, to the top of the mountain. That once we start just looking at the leaders right in front of us, we will become divided because leaders even disagree with one another. This week, I want to talk about what Christ has to say about this very topic of unity. This very topic. I want to go to the top of the mountain. I want to talk about a prayer that he offered for all of us, for anyone who would at some point believe in him. And that prayer on unity, it's going to teach me two things. I'm going to say it now, and then I'm going to hopefully let you experience it and see it in the text here this morning. But here's what I want to say first about unity, that unity isn't complete until it's on the street. This is mildly cheesy. This is borderline cheese. I couldn't quite tell if this was too cheesy or not, but it rhymes. I'm hoping it can be helpful in your memory, your memory of it, okay? Borderline, borderline cheesy, but here is, unity isn't complete until it's on the street, meaning that unity, unity doesn't exist as an idea. It's not a principle. It's not as if, oh, yep, I believe in Jesus, I think the Bible is true, and God is Trinitarian. Like, great. Now I'm unified with everybody in the room. Sure. In, uh, just in your brain, but unity isn't complete until it's on the street. That just because you get the uniform doesn't mean that you're a team yet. You've got to work it out together through the divisions, through the fights, through the anger that we sometimes feel with one another, and through the journey. Unity becomes complete in the fight, in the journey, in the working through so many things. Unity isn't complete until it's on the street. That's what I mean by that. And I get that from John 17, where we're going to be in a second. Secondly, this, and these are the only two things I want to say today, and you might say, well, why don't you just say them and stop? because that's not the way it works. The second thing I want to say is this, that unity gives us margin to love. Unity gives us margin to love. And, and I hope that this is a, a really big idea for you that I can flesh out in the text, but unity actually gives us space in our lives to love one another in a more unselfish way when our vision is set correctly. Now, these are my phrases around what I think Jesus is teaching, so you get to decide if I'm on track or not, because I want to take you right to Jesus' words and right to his prayer. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 17. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, the right two-thirds of your Bible, or it's on your app. You can flip through that. If you're at home, feel free to look that up. Um, I'm also going to throw it up on the screen here today, um, so you can see that kind of no matter where you are. You can find it one way or the other. So we're jumping into this 
letter that John wrote. John was a follower of Jesus, and John wrote down what happened in Jesus' life, and we find ourselves in context. We're sitting in kind of observing what's happening, sitting in what's called the upper room. This is a, a room where Jesus met with his disciples, and this was the, the night before he was betrayed, or the night he was betrayed, the, the day before he was crucified. And um, he ends up sharing communion with, with the disciples, ends up washing their feet and, and sharing communion with them. And then in a very intimate moment after Judas leaves, just Jesus and his disciples with what Jesus knows is, is pending crucifixion. It's in this moment, incredibly intimate moment, the most intimate portrait of Jesus and the disciples in the New Testament, that Jesus prays, prays for them and prays further for us. I'm going to pick it up in John 17, verse 20, toward the end of Jesus' prayer. And here's what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. So he's speaking to God the Father. My prayer is not for them, meaning for the disciples alone that were in the room. My prayer is not just for them alone, those people I see right here. Then he looks forward. He looks down the annals of time. And if you call yourself a Christian, I believe right here he's praying for you. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So this is for you. If this is what you believe, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's praying. Jesus is praying for you. And this is why. Like, if Jesus is praying this for you, this is why it's such a big deal to me. Like, this is then what Jesus would want his followers to be about. He goes on. That all of them, he says, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. Pause it right there for a second. His prayer is for unity, that all of them may be one. And then he puts it this way. He said, just as you are in me and I am in you. Understand the basis of this. He's saying, Father, you are in me and I am in you. And now we're starting to talk about a weird and complex and mysterious and beautiful and amazing Trinitarian relationship. That God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal in the Godhead, have always been in this dynamic dance of relationship of co-equality with different functions throughout all of eternity. And believe it or not, I believe that there are sometimes when God the Son, when Jesus Christ doesn't want to do the very thing that God the Father wants him to do. In other words, there is sometimes disagreement even in the Trinitarian relationship. I'm just not making that up, because Jesus himself prayed, Lord, take, Father, take this cup from me. He says, I don't want to go to the cross. And in that co-equal relationship where there is incredible unity, there is still disagreement, if you will, if I can put it that way. There may be a better word, and maybe you can help me think of it, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say, that it's not as if everyone agrees on everything, even within the Trinitarian relationship. God the Son says, I, I don't want to go to the cross but I will yield to your will. I'm going to submit to your will. And this dynamic relationship is the basis upon which Jesus prays for you and for me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that these people who will someday follow me will be able to experience a community where they can be in this kind of dynamic relationship with one another, where there can be kind of this co-equality, this understanding that it's on the basis of the Trinitarian relationship that Christians should learn the challenge and opportunity of working together, of seeing together a bigger vision than just ourselves. Just as you are in me and I am in you. He says, may they also be in us. And then here's the big, so that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Don't miss this. So that, so that, Jesus makes it real simple. The reason this is so important is because the world will believe the mission of the church is hitched to the unity of the church. That all of a sudden, if the church isn't unified, <laughs> the mission of the church is unhitched and gone. Why would anyone, why would anyone be interested in following a, a Jesus who is divided himself? Why would anyone be interested in following a message of hope and reconciliation that is rife with division and anger? Why would anyone be interested in that? Good grief. Don't we have enough pain and struggle in our own lives already? Then why don't you come join a church with me and I'll offer you more? <laughs> what a terrible message that would be. And this is what Jesus prays because he knows how central pain and struggle is going to be to all of our lives. He said, I pray, I pray that they can be one even as we are one in the Trinitarian relationship. And the reason I pray is that so that people can look at the church and Christians and see something different and see that there is an opportunity and a place for people to connect, to relate, to disagree, yes, but that they can see in that relationship there is a unity that carries beyond just our own personal preferences so that they can believe, God, that you have sent me, not just that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was sent by God himself. He says, I've given you the glory, excuse me, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And then he says this in verse 23, and to me, 23 is, is probably the key verse, at least as I see it, as we walk through this part of Jesus' prayer. He says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I'm going to pause it on that phrase for a minute. So that they may be brought to complete unity. This is where I get my idea that I shared at the beginning, that unity isn't complete until it's... Thank you. Do that one more time. Unity isn't complete until it's on the street. That was pretty good. Even through muffled masks, I appreciate that. Unity isn't complete until it's on the street. Here's where I get this idea. Jesus prays that you can be brought to complete unity. The assumption is you are not there yet. Like you're being brought to a future place that you are currently not in. That you're, you're going to be brought to a completeness of unity. It's a fullness of unity that you're just currently not in. That he's looking ahead and saying, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you can be brought into this completeness of unity. And I think he looks around the room at his disciples and knows that this has been part of their journey too. That they didn't become a unified disciple team the day that Jesus called them. The day that he said, put down your nets and follow me. It wasn't like all of a sudden they are fully unified. No, no, no. That was just the day they made the team. That was just when they got their uniforms. But they hadn't even played any games yet. They haven't gone through any struggle yet, not for real. In the years that follow, as we see their lives in the New Testament, we see them fighting with each other. Hey, Jesus, I want to be sitting on your right in glory. I want to be sitting on your right in glory. Hey, he did this, and why don't you do this? And there's fighting and bickering even among the disciples. And it's through that journey that all of a sudden those disciples are sitting in that room years later by following that path of Jesus and keeping their eyes up on him years later that they are brought to a completer, if I can use that word, completer, more complete unity, than they were when they first were called by him to be a disciple. There's a completeness to unity that comes through the willingness to struggle alongside through pain and loss and hurt that we all experience on a team and we all experience even in the Christian team, if you will, if you know what I'm saying. And so Jesus prays for this. He prays that we can push through the hard stuff 
And you know people like this. You know marriages like this who have wrestled through the hard stuff and made it. You know teams like this. You know work teams like this. You know administrative leadership teams like this. You know people who have pushed through the junk and come out on the other side, and there's a greater unity that exists because of that. You have seen this work, and this is what Jesus prays for the church. And in a way, he's saying, church, remember, you don't get to be fully unified just by saying, I believe in Jesus, just by getting the uniform, just by being on the team and getting the team picture. There's a completeness that will come, and that's what he yearns for and prays. I pray that you can be brought to complete unity. And then he says two things will happen. The world... The world will know a couple things. The world will know two things. The world will know that you sent me. This is so important. That the world will know that Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father. That not just that Jesus is a good teacher, but that the world will look at Jesus Christ and say, man, the God who made this world sent someone to me. The God who made this world sent someone to me that I can be known by him. God the Father wants me to know him, and I see that in Jesus because, because, of the unity of his disciples. What a strange and powerful weight that is. That our unity through difficult, potentially dividing times is a message to the world that God sent Jesus, and not just that Jesus is one of other great religious leaders, but that Jesus stands out as the, the message from the creator of the world to every single person to say, I love you. Believe in Jesus, because you see something strange that you don't see anywhere else. You see people who are deeply undivided, who are unified around a greater cause, even though they have every reason to fight and argue with each other. They have their eyes up to something else. And then he says that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. That the world will know that, that you... Heavenly Father, love them. And this is where I get that idea at the beginning, that unity gives us margin to love. I don't know if you put it in those terms before, but I think you've seen it. Unity gives us margin to love. The reason that is true is that unity takes our eyes from our hurt and pain and struggle and puts it higher. For example, if you can imagine a basketball team, and that's, pardon me, that's just the world I live in with my coaching, so apply some other example if you would, but that's what comes to me naturally. With the game on the line, one of your, your players, your teammates goes to the line, you're down by one, you got two free throws, misses them both, your team loses at the last second. Now what happens to that team? Especially when everyone knows, well, that guy should have been practicing his free throws and never does. <laughs> that adds a little bit to it, doesn't it? Unity on a team will give that team margin to absorb the pain of that loss and not crucify that player for his failure. Margin on that team will give them space to bear that shame and guilt for not practicing together. Unity on that team will say there's something more important here than us shaming the life out of that guy, and we're going to have margin to love because we see there's a bigger picture. We need him, and he's done great things, and we all share responsibility. We are unified beyond just your performance on the court. Unity provides you and gives you margin and space to love and absorb failures and pain from other people. You see this in marriages. You see this in good workplace environments where people come to work, and they lose the company $10,000 the first week they're there because they entered something wrong in the account. 
The unity of the team and of the organization reaches beyond and says, we need to do more here than just shame and put pain on this individual. I'm going to give margin to love because we see beyond right now. Unity also does this. The reason unity gives us margin to love is it also takes the focus off of ourselves. With a team, whether it's a basketball team or a corporate team or even a church team, when you're unified at something beyond yourself, you're able to say, I'm looking, I'm looking up, particularly in faith, I'm looking up to Christ, and I can look past what personally offends me. Because I'm willing to set aside my preferences, unity takes the focus off of me and gives me margin or space to love you. And this is what Jesus prays for. I pray that they will be one so that the world will know that you sent me and, and that you have loved me even as you, that you love them, even as you have loved me. But the message to the world is God the Father loves you. But the only way to extend that is for our vision to be up and our vision to be together and unity around vision on Christ gives us margin and space to love one another. Jesus continues in his prayer, verse 24. He puts it this way, Father, I want those who have given me Excuse me, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. There's our love piece again. That I want them to know that you have loved me and that that extends out toward you. Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. And then he finishes this way. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Again, he comes back to the Trinitarian relationship. He drives home this point that we need margin to love, that unity provides that, that the love that you have for me, God the Father, you have love for me, and it's in me, and now I am in them, and may that love be in them. So may all the unity that we share and the love that we share in this Trinitarian relationship just be moved over and plopped into the heart of anyone who will one day call me Savior that this can be expressed in the lives of people who call themselves Christian. So here's what I wanted to say. Two things that I said at the beginning that I hope you've seen in Jesus' prayer. That unity is not complete until it's on the street. Unity isn't complete until it's on the street. We're not just unified because you come to the same church or because we even say that we worship the same God. We're not just unified because we have ideas that we share. We're not unified because we agree in theory on forms of worship. We're not unified for other reasons. We're not unified because we share any other characteristics, although those, those may help us. Fundamentally, we're unified as we work this out and move toward complete unity. It is the work of, just like any team, going through the ups and downs, the season, the losses, the pain, the struggle, absorbing it all. This is where unity is complete. And then unity gives us margin to love like God. Unity gives us margin to love like God. There's no, right now, right now, do you know many people, don't raise your hand or point to people, do you know many people who have a ton of margin right now, who are just walking around when you ask them the question, how are you doing, and just say, you know what, this is an amazing time, we have a ton of margin, I just don't know what to do with all the free time I have and the extra time I have to think about the wonders of the world. I mean, who has extra margin right now? 
who is not watching the news and feeling the weight of what's going on, who is not impacted by relational challenges that we all share with friends who may think one way or the other, who is not impacted by the weight of what we're doing, who is sitting around with like, man, I've just got a, I've got a ton of margin, like I just, life is not hitting me very hard. I don't know many people like that. And so when I say that unity gives us margin, what I'm, what I'm saying is that the unity of vision can give us margin. That looking to Christ and getting our eyes off of ourselves, looking to Christ can help us absorb the pain and failures that we share together. Looking to Christ can help us take the eyes of ourse- off ourselves and give us margin to find love for one another, which is the heart of Christ's prayer. That we can love that our unity is expressed in love even when we disagree, even in the Trinitarian relationship. There is love in that space. That there may be love for Christians. That that love may show to the world that God sent Christ. And that that love can show to the world that God loves them. So I want to ask this two sets of questions. I asked this question a while ago. I think it was helpful to some, but I came back to it again this week as I think it's helpful for me. If it's helpful to you, then here you go. Two questions that I think can help you with margin or find margin. And it's simply this. What has been lost and what has been gained? What has been lost and what has been gained? As you think about where you're at in your life right now, what have you lost and what have you gained? I'm asking for you to be honest and I'm asking for you to consider gratitude. I'm asking you to be honest and I'm asking you to look at thankfulness. I'm asking you to choose gratitude and choose honesty. What has been lost? Some of you are losing things as you're going back to college this fall, and you've lost in-person studies. You've lost uh, athletic seasons, um, theater seasons. You've lost a lot. Some of you are graduating, and you have already lost a senior year of high school. Some of you are losing with your children. Some of you are losing with your families in different ways, then you have lost things. I'm just asking you to keep being honest. Here's, here's what I've lost. But in every loss, there's also a gain. In every loss, there's also a gain. And I want to encourage you to choose an attitude of gratitude here to say, what have I gained in this space? What have I gained? Maybe what I've gained is an added desperation for the touch of God in my life. Maybe what I've gained is a recognition that certainty has become an idol for me. And I need God more than I ever thought I would. Maybe what I've gained is a realization that my schedule is my king. That it's a fine veneer of my own interest to control this world. And this has wrecked me. And I've gained a personal understanding that God is in control through all of this pain. What have you gained? What have you gained? And as you begin to think about what have I lost and what have I gained, I want to encourage you to be honest about the pain and thankful for the opportunities. And in that gratitude space, begin to say, what if I were to take my eyes up on Christ? And look around at those who call themselves believers who are struggling, those who call themselves searching, or who just like, I don't know where I'm at. My friends, my family. And ask, what if I've gained a fresh perspective on the love of Christ during this season? What if I've gained a fresh perspective that God is in control? What if I've gained a fresh perspective, understanding where my interests lie? What if I can offer some of that to my neighbor? 
Because unity isn't complete until it's on the street. And so I want to encourage you to act in love toward those who are around you. Corporately as a church, we've talked about doing four things right now in the next year. We've talked about seeing these homes that we own be turned into transitional housing for some of the most um, vulnerable people in our community. You should know, we took a factory staff member through one of our homes this week. We're looking at hopefully signing a lease in August. In the next couple of weeks, you'll probably see opportunities for you to give to furnishings for that house. As we begin to take our eyes off of the pain we feel and think, how can we serve those in our community who are the most vulnerable? There'll be opportunities for you to connect there. We've been talking with Carla Neff at the factory in partnership with Pequot Valley about Braves Kids Mentoring Program. She's been working with us and we're looking at the opportunity to tutor about 70 kids and just, excuse me, mentor, tutor is the wrong word, mentor about 70 kids at Pequot Valley has identified need mentoring. Through her program and working with the district, we have the opportunity to connect very intentionally through the fall and, and beyond, look for opportunities for that. We have a renovation project coming up at the Together Community Center that we believe right now will start at the end of August and maybe early September. There'll be opportunities for you to give and serve, showing the love of Christ in renovating some of those areas of the, that building so that we can show the tangible love of Christ right now. There's going to be opportunities for a new business entrepreneurial venture, kind of like a Christian shark tank, for lack of a better term, to give young leaders in our community the opportunity to start businesses combined with Christian mentoring, with tried and true business leaders in partnership with the factory, also working with Assets in Lancaster and a few other folks, Pequot um, Valley District as well. These are corporate attempts as a church body to reach out right now and say, we exist beyond ourselves. We want to think about how can we show the tangible love of Christ to our community. You have those same opportunities to show love to people around you. It may be as simple as a text to your friend, <laughs> A reach out a letter, a note to someone who you know at school right now who is struggling. Any school leader can use encouragement right now. Doesn't matter who they are. They can use encouragement right now. So I'm just saying that unity is complete when it's on the street, that the love of Christ will unite us, that our vision on Jesus will unite us. And if nothing else, guys, this is what I come down to, if nothing else, Jesus himself, in the most intimate of moments, the moments before he was to leave that upper room, he prayed. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the last words of people, they tend to mean something more to me, and they probably do to you. These were some of the last words of Christ. And what he prayed for the church is that we could figure it out, is that we could figure out unity, is that we could work it out in love, unusual love for one another. And what that means to me on the flip side is this. Please be careful right now. Please be careful right now about what you choose to allow to divide you from someone else who is a brother or sister in Christ. Please be careful that what you allow to divide you would stand up to a conversation with Jesus when he says, guys, I, I prayed for this for you. I prayed that you would be unified. I prayed that you would experience the mysterious power of the communal relationship of the Trinity, that you would experience that, you could show it to the world. Now, let's talk about what divided you. Go ahead. Just be careful that it will stand up to a conversation with him someday that says, this is why I chose division. 
This is why I chose to separate from brothers and sisters. I know you prayed for us to be unified, but this was too much. This was too much. So guys, let's keep our eyes on Christ. And in doing so, he will give us the margin to love even people who vehemently disagree with us. And that is what love demands, requires of us. And it is hard, but I know of no other option. When Jesus himself prayed and pleaded with the Father that we, church, could be deeply undivided like that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning and to settle into this upper room with your Son and with these disciples who were there to experience the intimacy of that moment where Jesus prays this, this deep and strong prayer for unity of the church, that we would grow in it, that it would become complete as we work it out on the street with one another, as we disagree, as we get angry with each other, as we wish that people would think differently. May you give us the grace to soften those edges, to be careful of judgment, to be careful of critique, and to find our unity in looking up at the cross of Christ, looking up at the prayer of Christ, that our love for one another, the unusual love that we can find for one another, will be found not because we have it in ourselves, but that we've been shown it, that we have felt it, that we've received it through Christ ourselves. So, Father, I know it is hard. It is our instinct to leave people who we disagree with. It is our instinct to circle around those who think like us. I know that. But I pray that we as people, as Christians, would find that these differences actually deepen us and do not need to divide us. Give us grace and love and care in great measure, I pray. It's in Jesus' name.